There we go. Awesome. Not many times over the last three years have we been able to welcome uh, guests into the pulpit, uh, but we have done it a few times. Um, But one of the things that we get to do this morning is not welcome a guest, but welcome a family member. And um, just around the beginning of this year, I remember getting a text from uh, Josh saying, hey, this guy is coming to church on Sunday, and you got to meet him, and a bunch of other stuff. <laughs> and I'm like, okay. And he's like, and, and he's got lots of tattoos. And I'm like, awesome, good, yeah, bring it on, that's great. And, uh, and so Blake came in, he was uh, unmistakable uh, as he came in that day, just because he had all those tattoos, and I was that must be the guy, and, and, and got to meet him, not knowing um, how special the connection was going to be between him and, and I after that day, and uh, God, I believe, has knit our hearts together, um, and it's been such an encouragement to me um, to be able to get to know this young man, uh, to get to know his heart for the Lord. Um, he is only 24 years old, uh, but he speaks with the authority and wisdom of someone much older than that. Um, over the last uh, three years especially, God has just totally transformed his life. Uh, he's going to share a little bit with you about his story, but one of the things that's been happening with Blake over the last three years that's very unusual for someone who's 24 years old, is that for the last three years, week in and week out, Blake has shepherded a Bible study uh, every single week on Wednesday nights out at 281 and 1604. Some of you are, are from that study, and, and, and you're being here as a result of that. Um, I don't know any other 24-year-old who has just said, you know what, I'm going to sacrifice my life and my time and, and um, everything to just serve these people in the way that Blake has. I believe it's a testimony to what God has done in his life. I believe you're going to hear that in, in what he shares with you this morning. Uh, he is going to be preaching through what we are preaching through. He's stepping right in uh, step with what we've been going through in Ephesians. And, um, and I am so happy to be able to welcome him this morning. And um, why don't you come up here? And um, I'm going to pray for Blake this morning, but I also want to just let you know something. Um, We believe that all of us here this morning are called to be disciples. Amen? But part of what it means to be a disciple is to make other disciples. And so as a church who believes in disciples and disciple-making and discipleship, we also believe that as a church, if we're a church filled with disciples who are supposed to make disciples, then the natural outflow of that should be that we would be a church that plants other churches, that we would be elders and pastors who help raise up other elders and pastors. And um, I believe that God has put a calling on this young man's life. I can't say that I know exactly what all that is, but I'm excited to watch that unfold. I'm excited to support that and, and to champion that in him. Uh, and in this family, and and I know that there will be a day where we get to see that uh, just continue to grow and bloom and blossom and 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 also reproduce. Um, besides that, 
this guy's getting married in a couple months. And, uh, and so uh, that's also very exciting as well. And uh, we're excited to celebrate with him and his fiancée, um, Cassie, over here. So let's, let's pray for this, our younger brother, this morning. Father, we thank you for your word because we know that your word will never return void, but it accomplishes all that it has set out to do. God, we thank you for your servant, because this morning he doesn't come to represent himself, but to represent his King and his Lord, Jesus Christ. God, as he opens his mouth this morning, we thank you that it will not be his words, but it will be your word. We pray that you would anoint him by your Holy Spirit to preach your word, to rightly divide the truth this morning for us, and to show himself approved in his study. We thank you, God, for what you have provided for us today. And we sit under it in submission and with open hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Awesome. <laughs> Good morning. morning. This is extremely intimidating. (laughs) Um, I know we've prayed a lot, but I'm going to pray one more time. Father, I come to you this morning trembling and afraid, much like Moses before your call to him. I know that you can use the least of us, and I know I am the least. I ask you today that it is not I, my words, my thoughts that go out to this family, but rather your words, your thoughts, your truth. I pray amidst this trembling and shaking, nervousness and everything else, that none of it distracts from your glory and your word. I ask you that if even a minute of remembrance of me today takes away a second of your glory, that it doesn't happen. I ask these things in your son's holy and matchless name. Amen. So, I uh, don't see her today, but I was talking to a girl named Abigail here. I'm not sure if she's here today or not. She's about six or seven, and uh, she came up to me, and she was talking to me, and I asked her, what do you think of Mike? And she goes, well, I like his beard, but uh, he kind of cries too much. <laughs> and uh, I said, yeah, he cries a lot, huh? And, she, and I go, he yells a little bit, too. And she says, yeah, he yells too much, too. Um, so this morning, I'm here to cry and yell at you. Um, and I appreciate the opportunity. <laughs> so for those of you who don't know me, my name is Blake, Blake Groomer. I'm 24 years old, and this will be my first time preaching. Uh, it's a wonderfully exciting and terrifying time for me uh, with this, and as Mike said, with an approaching marriage. I'm learning a lot, and this church has really taught me so much since I started coming in March. It's a privilege to be here, and I truly and dearly love you all. As my nerves are rather haywire, 
I have pre-written this sermon, so I stay on task and point. I pray that because of this, no one views me as being robotic or lacking sincerity. This is rather just a frail man's attempt to bring you the word of God. I stand here, though, as quite certainly the least likely of all men to be here. My past, you see, is as colorful as the tattoos that Mike recognized me with. And Paul called himself a chief of sinners, but that was perhaps only because he had not yet met me. See, before this, four years ago, before I was saved, I, much like Paul, pursued Christians. I was an atheist, an anti-theist, which means I wasn't just against the idea of God. I was against Christians and anyone who believed in God. And I was most specifically a sort of nihilist, which means I believed there was no meaning in life. Um, Nothing mattered. I couldn't even trust my own thoughts. I just said we were the product of chemicals and secretions. I was hell-bent, because of this, on stripping Christians of what I deemed their fairy tale. I was a writer enveloped and absurdly obsessed with the task of creating my own sword from my own words to cut down the God of the Bible. I was a wretch among wretches, a fool among fools, a blasphemer among blasphemers. I lived in the pit. I made my homes the depths of spiritual deadness, and I threw my claws out at any who would venture past in hopes of dragging them down with me into despair and hopelessness. However, by God's grace, I did not stay in that pit. In fact, I was drawn out of it. I was called by God the Father, drawn by the Holy Spirit, covered by the blood of the Son. And in this process, I was born again. I was regenerated from spiritual death to spiritual life, all by the work and the power of God alone. I still remember the moment, too. I remember the question. My best friend Steve was there. I remember being asked if I believe in God because Steve had said, well, I think Blake may actually believe in God. In the crowd where I was the most outspoken atheist, the most outspoken person against Christ, a man who wrote and wrote and wrote about how much I hated God, I hated Christ, and I hated anyone who followed them. I remember the question of, do you? Are you a Christian? Do you believe in God? And I was going to say no. I really was. 100%. Instead, life was given to a dead man. And I held Christ as king in that moment. It's for this reason today that I'm so excited and thrilled to be able to preach on this text. This text is one about all of us here today in some form or fashion. It's one that all believers have lived through. If you are here and you are not a believer, this text is about your current state of affairs. We will be looking at Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. I will be primarily focusing on verse 1 because there's so much there. There's so much in these few words to be understood. 
Today we will be remembering why we needed and still need Christ as our Savior. This is a crucial remembrance for two reasons. One, unless you know what you were saved from, a Savior really doesn't make much sense to you. Two, because we honestly so rarely include what men need to be saved from when we talk about giving the gospel. We have, in a way, really lost the gospel because of this. We've turned the gospel into a do better, be better message. In doing so, we've joined every other religion in the world and every other false works-based gospel. And there is a third and final ultimate reason for this remembrance today. The first one is for you. The second one is for others. The third is for God. Because God is most glorified when his children know about him and his work and love him for it and preach the gospel about it to others. Our chief in, as the Westminster Larger Catechism said, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And we cannot do either if we don't look back to why we need it and still need a Savior. Paul prayed the following for the Ephesians in the first chapter of this epistle. He prayed that you know God, that you know the hope to which He has called you, and to know His power, which is linked in the resurrection, and as we'll see today, is linked in another resurrection as well. These things should be in the back of our minds as we travel down this path. Doctrines of grace and depravity are what we seek to examine and comprehend this morning. I have to stress that this will, if properly understood, pour over into everything. It will determine how you view others, how you view the least of us. It will determine how you understand the gospel. It will embolden you when you tell unbelievers they must be saved. It will shape your apologetic work when you know the state of natural man. It will make your love for Christ flourish. It will cause you to see that if you have but only Christ alone, you have everything and lack nothing. So many men today view being a Christian as just a mere matter of belief. They believe that nothing really happens when you're saved. You just basically spare the flames and then nothing. Nothing changes. You just go on living and you try to be better. And so we're going to examine the power that is given to every Christian. The power which raised Christ from the dead is the same power that raised all Christians from the dead. And so I ask you to turn to Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. I will continue the liturgy that Mike does with us after reading this together. I will say, this is the word of the Lord, and you will reply, thanks be to God. Okay. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, 
and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the measurable riches of his grace in the kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. The phrase, dead in the trespasses and sins, is where we will camp for most of today. If you notice, Paul brought that same thought twice in this thought. By later on saying, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. So Paul here talks about the love of God, and to bolster understanding of such a love of a saving God, he goes to what God saved us from. It makes sense. Because why do we love God at all? If God was a deistic God, all-powerful but wholly detached, I really doubt any of us would love him. Why? Because he wouldn't love us. All Christians should know that we love him because he first loved us. We didn't love him first. He loved us first. We should know that because that's what 1 John tells us, and we should know that because that's what all believers have to have experienced. Paul seeks to develop that knowledge because understanding this will aid us in understanding the amazing, almost insane depths of the love of God. And the more we understand the love of God, the more we will then in turn love God. If you look back in chapter 1, Paul's prayer for the Ephesians was, in verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of Him. So Paul wants the Ephesians to have knowledge of God. And that is so important because what is understood in our head moves to our hearts and is seen in our hands. Our actions directly reflect how we feel about God, and I would argue they reflect what we know about God. Paul also in chapter 1 states he wants the Ephesians to know, in, in verses 19 through 20, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Paul asks for two things there. That we know God and that we know what God did through the Holy Spirit in Christ by raising him from the dead, he also did in us. He rose us from the dead. 
so that they know these things, Paul has the Ephesians cast their eyes to the past. And it's not a pretty past. It's their past, and if you're a Christian today, it is your past. Why does he do this? Again, because he wants us to love God. I want to hammer that thought into your mind this morning. If we want to love God more, we have to understand what he has saved us from and what he did to do it. It is far too easy to take for granted things we don't truly see or understand. If you're walking down a road, for example, and you bump into a man, and you don't want to know a man, so what? You're not going to stop. You may even get a little mad that he had the audacity to bump into great and mighty you and interrupt your day. (laughs) But what if that man bumped into you And in doing so, a sniper ready to take you out missed his shot. So what? You wouldn't know. You just go about your day. Just think the guy bumps you and that's it. You wouldn't even know the danger you were in. But if the man who saved your life, if that man stood between you and a man with a gun, and he took a bullet for you while taking your attacker down, well, that man's going to mean something to you. And that action is going to mean something to you. You're going to love that man and thank that man and be grateful for that man. And you're going to want to know about that man. And you're going to tell others about that man. And you're not going to care how annoyed your friends get hearing about that man because that man first showed love to you and you understood the love showed. You saw it. You understand the risk taken to save your life. You saw the blood shed to save you. And because of him first loving you, you will love him in return. So Paul seeks here to inform us of a greater man, another man, the God man, who didn't just save your life, but rather gave you life because you were dead. Because Paul knows that if you can know the truth about your state in your pre-Christian life, it will stir your affection so much that nothing else in your life will matter in comparison to Christ. And so he uses this example, a dreaded example that honestly many preachers and teachers stay away from to their shame. This is going to be a difficult path to walk today. Because the gospel always is. I'm going to say things today about all of us in some form or shape. Either about you today or about you yesterday. And it doesn't stop there. What I say today is not about just the people in this room. It's about the people in every room. It's about every single person you know without exception. The sword that I preach from today, the word that will go out and not return void, is not one that is so easy that it just makes you feel great about yourself at first. This is not a message that draws in the the masses with a make every day a Friday kind of theme. This sword cuts, and it cuts deep, and you will bleed. Some of you may even listen today, look here at the text and say, well, this is just an example. Paul doesn't truly mean we were literally dead. 
when he says we were dead in our trespasses and sins? And my response is, if you miss this, if you deny this, you in fact undermine the whole beauty of the gospel. In fact, you attempt to rob the Savior from what he saved you from. You attempt to lessen the beauty in a God who loved us first because you attempt to make yourself appear lovable before Christ, and you were not in any way, shape, facet, or form. Now, those are bold claims. But I ask you to hear me out, for I intend to make them clearer as we go on. And so we will start right after the beginning. We go there to examine the state of man today, and to do so we must examine the fall, sin, and the punishment thereof. I ask you to turn to Genesis 2, 16 through 17. The very beginning. As you're turning there, what did our parents do in the garden? They fell, right? And how did they fall? They fell by breaking God's command. Genesis 2, 16 through 17 says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. The 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith in chapter 6.2 says this, Our first parents, by this sin, it's the sin of eating the forbidden fruit, fell from their original righteousness, and communion with God, and we in them, whereby death came upon all, all becoming dead in sin, wholly defiled in all faculties and parts of the body. I watched a debate a little while back, maybe a month or two, with Saichin Brugit. He's a Christian apologist, for those unfamiliar. Sai was asked, mockingly, by an atheist, because he was in a room full of atheists. And they said, why didn't man die in the garden like God said they would? His response was, man did die. He died spiritually. He received only laughter from that room. Was he wrong? No. But many think he was. You see, many seem to think that God was lying here. And this is just another example of why the Bible is false. That's if you're an unbeliever. Or if we are believers, that he was just exaggerating. That when he said, the day you eat of it, you shall surely die, that God must not have been very sure about what he said would surely come to pass. Is this correct? No. We died. We fell. Not merely into the doghouse with God, not merely into having to sleep on the couch for a few nights, but rather into the morgue. And what corpse has hope to get him or herself up and walk out of a morgue? Every child after Adam and Eve is born in the grave. We are all stillborns, spiritual ones, And the spiritual crypt is not one that holds us merely until our bodies decay, like the physical, but one that will hold us for all of eternity. Some even like to think that we got off light in the garden, 
that dying spiritually is a lesser sentence than just dying physically. Dear brothers and sisters, let me be entirely clear. Our spiritual death was a far, far greater tragedy than any physical death. Think of the worst physical death you can think of that you know. The spiritual was worse. Physical death cuts you off from the world. Spiritual death cuts you off from God. Paul wants you to know the surpassing worth of God. And so he points you to a time when you had no God. A time when you were not merely wounded, but rotten, bloated, festering, and ugly. Because that's what death is. It's not pretty. Death is absolutely horrible. My baby sister is pursuing a degree in mortuary science. And she also works in a funeral home. I get to hear stories all the time from her. And things she sees are ugly. Just the other day, she told me about an accident with two burn victims. My 20-year-old sister took care of those bodies. For the sake of the children here, I won't go into the detail that she described. But what her hands had to touch behind thin gloves was ugly and gruesome and enough to give most people nightmares and to sob and to grieve and to be scarred. And that's what Paul is saying you are or were. If you are out of Christ, that is what you are today, right now, this second. And the physical, as ugly as it is, it pales in comparison to the spiritual. Ask yourself, how vile are we to the holy God? How loving was he to even cast a glance at us? It was already an amazing amount of grace to let our bodies live while our spirits were dead, to give us the grace to allow us to have some pleasure and some happiness before eternal deserved wrath. But he did much more than just be patient with our stench. He had a plan from before the world's foundation to adopt us as sons and daughters, not as slaves, not even as being on levels with the angels, but as heirs of a kingdom that he was pleased to give his children. And when he willed this, we were dead. I'm pleading with you this morning to understand the weight of that statement so that the glory of God may overcome your hearts and your minds because we can leave death in a casket. We can dress it up to make it look real nice. We can make it look like a happy thing. We can put makeup all over a corpse. But Paul today is telling us to open the coffin, wipe off the cosmetics, and look at death and stare at it and know that you are looking either in a mirror or a past mirror. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men, because all sinned. A major theme 
of the letter to the Ephesians is identity. Paul repeats the phrase in Christ over and over again in efforts to drive, point, drive the point all the way home that the believer's identity is not one to be found in our hands, but in the hands nailed to a cross. To most clearly show that identity, our current identity, Paul describes former identity. Dead in our trespasses and sins. That was our former identity. But what does that mean? What is the activity of someone who is dead in their trespasses and sins? The 1689's verbiage was all becoming dead in sin and wholly defiled in all faculties and parts of soul and body. Wholly defiled in all faculties, soul and body. Is that an exaggeration? We can go right out of Eden to see. Genesis 6-5 says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil and evil continually. So just a few chapters out of Eden, a few chapters into the fall, and already every intention, every intention of the thoughts of our hearts, that means the innermost core of our being, what makes us who we are, was only evil, and evil continually. Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 17:9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The children of my generation, and perhaps generations past, were taught a crippling teaching by every Disney movie we ever watched. And that was, follow your heart. That's humanism. The do you, I'll do me kind of thing. You're the boss, the king, the man, the ruler. It's Burger King. Have it your way. You're the one. You're the only one. McDonald's tells you that. Everybody tells you that, really. The customer is always right is a form of that. It's humanism. Remember that the next time you eat a Whataburger, just like you like it. Humanism. But the Bible says, following your heart. Well, the heart is evil and only evil. But wait, you may say only evil continually. I mean, I know we're bad, sure. But only evil? Does not every religion in the world agree that something is very wrong with us? The difference in ours and Christianity is Christianity says something is wrong with us and that something makes us wholly incapable of doing anything good or right until we are saved. Try to make a work-based system out of that. It claims every breath you take is sin. Every move you make is sin. It's sin, sin, and only sin. But surely, surely, we aren't saying that, you know, the little old lady who lives across the street and walks her dog and, you know, waves to you every morning and, you know, is really loving with her grandchildren and, you know, she donates to that charity. Surely we're not saying that she's not a good person, right? Even though she doesn't know Christ, I mean, is she a good person? 
Family, when we claim these are good people, we speak as atheists. We equivocate morality and the definition of good and evil by our fallen, faulty, inconsistent standards instead of the standards of God. What does the Bible say about the cute little old lady who doesn't know or love Christ? Hebrews 11.6 says, And without faith it is impossible to please Him, Him being God. So who cares if this little old lady can please men if she can't please God? Jesus said sinners do good to each other, but they're still sinners. He said evil parents give their children good gifts, but what are they? Evil. The parent who gave the awesome gift to his kid for graduating from high school or college, awesome gift, what's that parent? Evil. Understand this. We were created in the image of God. We were created to reflect His glory. So when we steal, we declare with our actions that God is a thief. When we lie, we declare God is a liar. When we covet, we declare God is lacking. Okay, fine. But what about when we show compassion? That's good, right? Isn't that good or in some way pleasing to God when the unbeliever shows compassion? Why? Because there is no faith. If it is not done for His glory, it does not please God. In fact, it's a failed attempt to rob God of His glory. An example I've always liked is, He is a king who has trained soldiers. Those soldiers one day rebelled against the king. As a soldier is today war against the king, they will undoubtedly use the knowledge and actions their former king taught them. And they may even admire amongst themselves some of the moves that they learned. But every movement, every breath, every attack will be in direct rebellion against their king. And because of that, it does not matter how great of a technique you have, they are rebels against the rightful king, and in doing so, they are fit to be sent to the guillotine. This is not about moralism. So many today believe that Christianity is just about cleaning up your act. We've made a religion of the American dream, and we've sprinkled Jesus' name just enough. And we've made it, uh, you just try, and you'll try your best, and you'll make it. No, you won't. You will fail. And why? Because your hands are filthy. Your soul is putrid. Your heart is rotten. There is no good in you whatsoever. And the fact that you don't fully understand that is just more evidence of sin in your life. We've lost the gospel. I've gone to churches up and down 1604. I've asked the Christians my age, in your own words, what is the gospel? And the answers I receive are moralism. This is the only church that hasn't happened at with me. And that is sadly unique. 
praise God that he works in this church. This isn't moralism. Every other religion in the world is about moralism. Francis Schaeffer said, there's only two religions in the world, humanism and Christianity. That's it. It boils down to that. Works or faith. That's it. This is Christianity. In the first part of the gospel is we are dead in our sin. Our hearts are wicked. Our soul is darkened. We are born evil. We are born with a sin nature. And in fact, no matter what, we cannot be moral. Jeremiah 13, 23 says, Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then also you can do good who are accustomed to doing evil. I may be able to tattoo my skin, but I can't change the color. Not the real color. A leopard can't change his spots. So likewise, natural man cannot do good. We are born with what's called original sin. The psalmist states in Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. This all comes down to a theological point known as federalism or federal headship. It's a concept with much depth that deserves many hours and days and weeks of study, but I'm just going to merely scratch the surface. The surface is God has two representatives for the human race. The first is Adam. The second is Christ. The Bible calls it the first Adam and the second Adam. We're in one or the other. The first Adam fell, and in doing so, he wholly corrupted our race. And so every child born from the line of Adam was and is born with a sin stain. As one pastor put it, vipers and diapers. And so we are not sinners because we sin. We don't earn that title, so to speak. But rather, we sin because we are sinners. That's our identity. Understand that identity precedes proclivity. Who you are determines what you do. It's not what you do that determines who you are. The Bible says it is what comes out that defiles you. It is the outpouring of your heart. And if your heart is dead, only sin and trespasses will pour out. Nothing else. So let's recap. We are men long dead. We have no hope. We are the walking dead, so to speak, zombies, waiting for our physical bodies to finally give out so that we may enter eternal torment. Every breath and action is sin and rebellion against God. We're putrid, vile, and nasty things. Paul perhaps sums it up best with Romans 3. Romans 3, 10 through 18. He says, no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. 
there is no fear of God before their eyes. Some read this and they say Paul was overstating his case here. I believe, if anything, he was understating it. And one must ask, is this just Paul? Is this just Paul's idea here? Or did he learn this from Jesus himself? In Matthew 8.21, the disciple approaches Jesus. He says, I want to follow you. He's going to follow him just like the others. But he says, Lord, first let, let me first go and bury my father. His father just died. But Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Let the spiritually dead bury the physically and spiritually dead. You have better things to do. This was not Paul's phrasing here. It was Jesus's. This was straight from the mouth that had the Alpha and Omega branded to his breath. But what did Jesus think about this deadness? Did he find it excusable? Was this a Lady Gaga, I was born this way, it's okay, you know, whatever? Or were we responsible? In Matthew 23, 27 28, he said, Woe to you! scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you are like the whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within they are full of dead man's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but within you're full of hypocrisy and iniquity. So here we have the quote-unquote righteous dead men Men clean on the outside to the naked eye, like a nice and pretty casket, with jewels and designs, and inside, rotten bones, death, festering, vomit-inducing odors, horrific sights, nothing to set before the king of the universe. So no, our deadness is not excusable in God's sight. In fact, it's abominable. Our inability to submit to God without a Savior is simply because we don't want to. We always do what we want most at any given moment. When we sin, it's because we desire sin more than God. And it was no different when you were out of Christ. You always wanted that death. And you never wanted anything to do with God. You never sought Him. The power of natural, of natural man's cannot is the depth of natural man's will not. We're sick, and desperately so. So what do we do? What do we do if all of our doing is sin? What's our hope? Is there any hope? Sin plus sin equals sin. There's nothing else. Do we choose to follow Christ? Dead men make no choices. There are no men walking out of our funeral homes who were just in their caskets. You can't just choose to come alive. It's not allowed 
by the very nature of death. It holds you. This is not a scenario of us drowning and being thrown a rope by Christ and then pulling ourselves to safety. This is a scenario of men dead at the bottom of the sea, bloated with no hope. And trust me, men who drown don't make it. My uncle drowned. I've seen the effects of the sea. And I've seen and we've seen the effects of the sea of sin that is in natural man's lives and is a far deeper flood than even the one with Noah. So what do we do? What is our hope? Turn back to Ephesians 2. We'll look at verses 4 through 5. The scripture says, But God, which is perhaps the most beautiful passage of scripture in the Bible. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Praise God. But God, but God, what was our hope? We had no hope, but God came in and gave us hope. He sent out a call to the dead rebels against the king, the rebel hearts, and he said, I am commanding you to turn and to follow me, to do an about face. And we said, that'll never happen. It will take a miracle for that to happen. And yes, it will. It will take the power, the power that only one has. The power to raise men from the dead. And so men like us, we preach the gospel. We cry the name of Christ in graveyards. And we look at God. And with our lack of faith, we say, oh God, why? Why? Don't you see? They're all dead. God, they're dead. If only you had shown up sooner. You, Father, you could have stopped this. If only you had stopped Adam and Eve. If only you had just hurried and not been so slow, they would be alive. But you didn't, Father. And now they're dead. They're all dead by the cold, by the millions, and they can't hear me. Couldn't you, Father? No one else could, but couldn't you, who created the heavens and the earth, have stopped this? As Scripture tells us. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her 
also weeping. He was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved them. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and the stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he's been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? And so they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this. I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you have sent me. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to him, said to them, unbind him and let him go. Lazarus, come out. Mike, come out. Cassie, come out. Jason, come out. And did we come? Yes. Because a king who calls is a king who receives. Don't you see? He knows we're dead. And he has wept for us. He has not merely the authority, not merely the power to raise you, but the affections too as well. But Blake, you don't understand. My father, my mother, my son, my daughter, my friend, I keep preaching to them. I keep giving them the gospel and nothing, brother, nothing, nothing, nothing. Keep preaching, family. Keep proclaiming. Because there was no one so cold and dead as I. And I stand here before you today, a living man, on display for the glory of God. Because my uncle didn't stop preaching to me week by week and day by day when I was 20 years old. The very next time the word Christ passes from your lips, may be the day they come alive. It may be the day, that glorious day, when all of heaven will celebrate, when darkness will turn to light, when night will turn to morning, when hopelessness becomes hopefulness, and Christ looks at your loved one and says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. 
And Paul says this is all by grace. And grace alone. Not by our works. And this is so important. Because if it was by our works, our works are sin. And we would never be saved. Paul places the portion about grace alone in parentheses in some translations. And I so love Charles Spurgeon's take on why. He says, see, Paul puts that in a parenthesis. It was not necessary to the sense. If you look at it, it kind of is a little bit out of place almost. It doesn't follow the pattern. But he knew that there would come a, become, there would come a time when men would not like this doctrine. So he puts in, by grace are you saved. They cannot bear it. And therefore, they shall have it. They shall have it when the sense does not seem to demand it. To make it quite clear, he will insert, by grace ye are saved. And it gets even better from there. Romans 5, 15-17 says, But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many die through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of, the righteous, of righteousness reign in life through that one man, Jesus Christ. So what does that mean? Many died, it says. Much more have the grace. Many have the grave. Much more have the grace. The free gift is not like the trespass. It's not merely the opposite, but the opposite and greater. It's not a yin-yang sort of balance, but rather it completely outweighs the curse. While the curse brought condemnation, spiritual death, the free gift brought justification. The declaration that we are righteous and we will always be. It does not mean that our debt was settled and we go back to square one at zero and then, you know, just do the best from there. But rather, our debt was settled and our account was so filled, so infinitely filled that no amount of future transactions, no amount of future failings will cause us to go back in debt. As Christ said on the cross, it's finished. It is finished. In John 14, Christ said we would do greater works 
Man, he did well on earth. What is that? Christ rose from the dead. What could possibly be greater than that? So many struggle with this. Resurrection. Regeneration. Being born again from the Spirit. Because physical death is horrible and spiritual death is worse. Reconciliation with God. Removal of sin's stain in exchange for crimson glory. So that we may come before the Almighty King like Esther went before the king of her day and not fear being caught in His wrath as sinners in the hands of an angry God, but rather being held in adoptive, predestined from ages past, love. And so today, tomorrow, next week, as you fail, and you will fail, know, know in your heart of hearts that you can run to the arms of your Father. For today you are alive, and He already ran to you when you were a corpse. And you were made alive, and you were made His child. We have so much hope with the gospel. The free gift is so much greater. It should inform our witnessing. It should bolster our courage that while many have the grave, much more have the grace. The power of the gospel, however, does not stop with just regeneration. It doesn't stop there. It does not merely bring you to life. We are not just justified, but we are being sanctified. We are being brought to glorification. What that means is we are being conformed to Christ. Day by day, we are being made to look more and more like Jesus. The power that saved you, that Paul wants you to know, is the power that changes you. Your identity with death kept you in sin. Your identity in Christ conforms you to Him. I so often get asked, Brother Blake, am I really a Christian? Because I just keep failing, brother. I just keep failing. Are you alive? Has the power of the Holy Spirit pumped a lifeless heart and filled it with new blood so that you may desire the things of God even while you struggle with the flesh? Do you not grieve over your sin? Are you not grieving now over your sin when you struggle with the concept of your salvation and not being good enough for your Savior? Have you no change in your life? Because where spiritual death means sin, spiritual life means you are rooted in Christ and you will produce fruit by the Holy Spirit that is of God. You will live your life by faith. You will struggle. Don't get me wrong, you will struggle. I struggle every day. I struggle even this morning. But a day will come when that struggle will end. 
when the already not yet that we live in today will become the here and now. And the blessed hope of the atonement will be realized like that in a moment. If you believe yourself to be a Christian today, though, and you look back and you see no change in your life, you see no fruit, you see mere moralism, whitewashed tombs, if you examine your life and you see no desire for God, you need to be honest with yourself. And you need to be honest with the methods of grace that God has given you here. We have two wonderful elders. We have one amazing deacon. And we have many brothers and sisters here that you can meet with. I know any of us, anyone, because I've met you all and I've talked to you. I know they'd all be ready and willing to walk with a family member through the trenches of doubt. The Bible says towards the end of this passage that we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus. The word workmanship comes from the Greek. And in the Greek, the first four letters of the work word are P-O-E-M, poem. The Bible says we are God's poetry. And he wrote this poem before eternity to conform us to Christ and with his pen to shape us unto good works. And he accomplishes that goal. God is not like the poets of men or the writers of men who suffer writer's block or go off in tangents we didn't plan. God's power is displayed in the poem. It's the power at work in your life writing you into the image of Christ. The power that rose you from the dead is the power that will conform you. It's there every day, every second of the day. You were not saved and set to figure things out on your own. You were saved and continue in a sense to be every day from any stench that still lingers. Like Lazarus, you were unbound and you are set free. You may look in the mirror and say, the poem that is yours doesn't seem to be very good. The rhyme pattern is off. The metaphors don't fit. The imagery is lacking. The tone is negative. Who made you? God did. God made you, and He isn't done making you. None of us are done yet. But the writing is happening. Beautiful quatrains are being pinned by a quill from ink tapped in a well of divine veins. You will make it. My family, you will make it. You just keep your eyes on Christ. In every failure, keep your eyes on Him. He is your portion. He is your prize. What is I in heaven but you?
I have a final word for those here today who may still be dead in sin. In John 5, 24-25, the Word of God says, Truly, truly, I say unto you, He who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, the hour is coming, and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. You are today sitting among many once dead, who today live. I invite you to join us in life. I do not seek to stir emotion. I come not to manipulate false conversion with feelings alone. But if you feel Christ at work in your heart, let's talk. Because for you, I have all day. I close with Revelation 22:17. Let him who is thirsty come. Whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. Let's pray. Father God, blessed be your name. Thank you for coming for rebels, for coming for the dead through the stench and opening those caskets, Father. Regenerating dead hearts and setting us free. Only you could have done it. Only you could have had the love not, and not just the affections to do so, but the power and the authority to do so. The plan to do so from before the earth's foundation to save your children, to give yourself a bride that was filthy, that you will clean and make presentable. I thank you so much for the opportunity today. I pray that I have been small. I am a small man, Father. I pray that I have been smaller so that you may be big, that your power may be displayed through the frailty of me that through the foolishness of my preaching, men may be saved, understanding may be had, and love for you may be bolstered. There is none like you. No one else would seek the least, but you have sought us. For that we bless your name. In your son's holy and matchless name,